I'm watching you. I'm watching you all the time. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a little bit of a bonus one. And I'm going to be philosophizing today on the book 1984 by George Orwell. I do have some notes here with me, but this is going to be more of a general just splurging of my thoughts, ideas on this book and why I think this book is so important. So some structure for you. I'll talk a little bit about language modification. I'll talk a little bit about a section by section play of, of the most interesting parts that I took from the book. I suppose the most important concepts that George Orwell developed or Eric Blair, as he's actually known, and why I think it's one of the best books ever written. So I'm just going to dive straight in, to be honest, no preamble. So in the appendix of this book, there's a, a very interesting section where he talks about the language that is created in 1984, Newspeak. And he says, like, the purpose of Newspeak is to diminish consciousness. Uh, Well, no, he doesn't say that. That's what I sort of got out from it, which was he was saying, okay, look, we've created this language and the point of it is to limit expression. So instead of having words like good and bad, you'll just have good and then the opposite of good is ungood. And if you want to say something is very good, you can just say plus good or plus ungood, which means it's very bad. So there's these all these methods they have of using, of destroying nouns, of taking away things. It's, it's quite fascinating because it gets into the very grammatical aspects of language learning. And I know personally, when I read this book before I had learned another language, I, I skipped over this and I found it quite uninteresting. But now that I can speak Spanish and I'm, and I'm learning German, I'm getting a much greater uh, emphasis from this section, uh, a much greater appreciation of what he was actually saying in this and why it is such a deep concept. Um, so the strict grammar, um, subduing nuance and linking is, is another thing. So when you have very strict grammar, like he was talking about in here, you uh, limit the ability for other people to fully express ideas and I think most importantly link concepts together. So getting a, a concept that is very useful in one language and transverse, uh, transversing it into another, for example, or being able to see how even in your own language, these two things which are, seem quite different, but when you combine them together can be something quite unique. Um, when I think of this, I think of the word anti-fragile, for example, coined by Nassim, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, which was okay, you have something fragile, that's when you apply stress, it breaks. You have something robust, which is where you apply stress, but nothing really happens to it, it doesn't get better. So what's something that's the opposite of fragile? It's not robust, it's anti-fragile. It's something where you apply stress onto it, it actually gets better. So it gets stronger. The human muscle, for example, you break it down in the gym and it builds itself back up stronger. So I think words like that, what he was he was saying is basically when you get rid of the nuances, when you get rid of the, the, the ability to link, you lose the ability to come up with new concepts like that. So what, what were some of the things that he was saying? Well, it's small syllable, easily pronounceable, um, euphonic style that was monotonous and without inflection as well. So he, he uh, compared it to duck speak in essence, which is the, the, the squacking, the quawking, the whatever do, uh, duck uh, noises a duck makes. That is what a, a language which is devoid of all these things will, 
will end up creating. And there's another really good book called, um, I think it's something like there are, uh, there's no snakes in the jungle or something. Um, I might have to look that up quickly while I've got uh, my laptop in front of me because uh, don't sleep there are snakes, perhaps. Don't sleep there are snakes. Yep. Don't sleep there are snakes by the author Daniel Everett. And this book was really great because he goes into the aspects of this really difficult to comprehend language, which had no, I think the, the main point of it was there was there was no ability to talk about you or I in strict terms, like I want something, I need this, you want that. It was, the, these people had a more communal-based linking of, of things. So, I couldn't really reference myself particularly as, a, as an entity. And he was just saying, basically, this allowed them to have a bit more of a group think in, in everything they said. There was no particular way of, of talking about oneself and one's own desires and needs because it didn't exist. The language didn't exist for that. Uh, so, it's, it's just very possible to create these languages as well and have them. Uh, so, it's, it's interesting, I guess, just to think about, you know, the English language and how it evolves and, you know, are we potentially making ourselves dumber or leaning towards a, a different state of consciousness by using more text speak, for example, lol, instead of, you know, laughing out loud or, or whatever. I, I'm not particularly against any of these. I don't have a dog in this fight, but it's interesting to note how just how language changes. So, that was a, a big one, uh, which I've really gained a, gained a greater appreciation, appreciation for since learning a new language. And it's something that, you know, if, if you're not into that, probably be worth just skipping over that section. So, now I'm going to go uh, just, I guess, like a little bit of a play-by-play, not exactly chapter by chapter, but just talking about some of the things that really stood out for me in the book. So, part one, chapter two, uh, he was writing for the past or future, why not the present? So, in the book, he was, there was, there was no ability of, I guess, meditation or being able to live in the present moment with any of the characters in the book, I don't think. Maybe exception uh, with, um, God, I've forgotten her name, Julieta, I think was her name, or Julia, who she she had a more carefree style. Um, so, she was Winston's lover and she had a more carefree style living for the present moment, whereas Winston was definitely more always analyzing the past or, or always analyzing the future and unable to appreciate or just get the the pragmatic, almost philosophical benefits of being able, psychological benefits of just being able to be as is. And so, he was saying he was writing for the past or the future and why why wasn't he able to write for the present? Why wasn't he able to be in the present moment? Perhaps that was just something to do with Winston, the character himself, or maybe that was what they were trying to instill the totalitarian government in the people so that they were always thinking of the, the past or the future and there's no strong emphasis on the present moment because when you're in the present moment, that's when you can really introspect, analyze how you feel and that's exactly what they didn't want. So, it's almost like, you know, a lot of people nowadays say that the 
not not that the ills of the world, but perhaps the the psychological um, diseases or the psychological maladies that we have are caused by an inability to live in the present. And that's why this government wanted that because they wanted people in this psychological state where they weren't able to think freely for themselves. So uh, chapter four I've, I've written here is physical or mental reality stronger. That's a bit of a hard one because in the book he he's talking a little bit about how we control everything. And this gets more towards the end uh, part, but there's certain sections where he was saying, okay, there's, uh, let me just try and find exactly what it is that I was uh, referring to here. So, yeah, so he was talking about how he was in his cubicle, he was doing all these, uh, his, his reporting, his modifying of the documents and whatnot. And he was just saying how, even though he had all these things, even though all this all this stuff was happening, he couldn't really tell exactly what was was happening. So, you know, I'm getting a, 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 at this at a roundabout way, but it was almost like what he perceived in his mind was just not strong enough. Uh, was was almost stronger than what was physically present in in the actual world. So he got caught up in this system of analyzing the past, analyzing the future, we're going to change all these things and how the modifying of that became stronger than what he could actually feel or touch in the real world. And so you can sort of see this nowadays, I guess, a little bit with, um, I guess, the emergence of fake news, for example, which is we get so much of our data now from not direct experience out in the world, but almost through like an indirect method, you're watching me or listening to me via some sort of device at the moment, rather than me being present with you trying to explain these things. And so it was sort of just getting at that point, which was how much should we trust in the our own physical experiences and what's happening on uh, versus how much maybe not mental is reality is the, is the best term for it. Maybe a, um, an inputted reality, a sort of secondhand reality coming from the devices that we use or the books that we read, or it's not something that's right in our face that we ourselves can observe. It's almost like a secondhand story. Interesting, interesting thoughts. Um, so in chapter six, the party defiled such destroyed all strong positive emotions and desires. Why was it that they were not scared of the, the opposite though, which was where they were promoting hate and suspicion and fear? What exactly is it about those which were more beneficial to the party? Because when you think about it, people do what, what motivates someone to do something. It usually is a strong emotion of some sort. If someone is very angry with the current system and wants to protest, they might go out and break windows and trash place, places and whatnot. They might be motivated to actually get out and take to the streets. And yet the same thing could be said for something about that you love. You, you love a person, so you're willing to go to their place, Romeo under the, under the balcony of Juliet with the flowers singing songs and whatnot. So, uh, it, yeah, it, it just uh, it, it occurred to me why in the book was, was there no sort of just dampening of both ends of the extremes, i.e. extreme love, joy, happiness, contentment, or the opposite, fear, hate, mistrust, anger, 
uh, wrath, that sort of envy, jealousness, whatever it is. Why weren't they damping down both ends, but they were just damping down the top and then actually promoting all the bad ones? Hard to say. I don't think that was fully explained in the book. And uh, I think that was, might might have been something that would have been uh, a little bit more interesting to to explore. Maybe just because it, there was a, an acknowledgement that humans don't have the ability to become like that. It's almost like we do need a pressure valve to release all these things that we have. And so better to do it for the wrong reasons than for the right reasons for the um, for the sake of the the government that was in power uh chapter seven as well he, he to quote uh, i understood how but i did not understand why and he was sort of tortured by this and i suppose the psychological burden of knowing that the past is all lies really got to him in this case and it got me thinking of you know what is hell what is the worst thing that a person can in can have can be in a state of and niche had a great quote which is he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how you notice it's still got the same things the why and the how but they're almost reversed in this case which was winston understood the how but he didn't understood the why and it was almost like that is what being in hell is like you can understand something for how it's happening the actual processes but you don't understand why. And <laughs> I mean, you could almost say that uh, we're living in hell right now because none of us particularly knows why the universe is existing um, or that at least there's no common consens- consensus of that. And maybe, you know, the people who do have their their whys, um, you know, God created this or uh, I'm atheistic and I I don't believe anything happens for a particular reason and that's why, you know, there there is no why. Um, and just being in that state of questioning why is almost like the that's where the psychological burden, the negative stuff happens. So I thought that was a great point, um, you know, almost contrasting that with niche and just saying like, wow, uh, okay, so if someone can has a why, they can bear almost any how. Well, if someone has the how but has no why, that's almost the opposite that's like the the most negative thing so interesting little little thing there i should stop saying interesting intriguing intriguing little thought there so part two chapter three the sexual privation uh, is to contain the energy which can be transferred into hysteria so if you wanted to contrast this with the if you've read the book brave new world by aldous huxley it's almost like the opposite of that with the numbing of soma so he, they had a drug there which was used to numb the population into subservience, whereas in this one they were doing the opposite. They were enhancing the intensity of experience for certain things to transfer that into something more, I guess, productive in a sense or more the outlet valve like I was talking about before. They they would didn't allow sexual freedom in this book by any means but they use that sexual energy to transfer that into a a new way of of expression in essence and the way of expression which was very direct and unalterable i in this case the 2 minutes of hate where they would just yell at the screen and and go crazy 
another concept of this, if you've read Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, he's got a very similar thing where he's saying some of the greatest men in history have been able to use sexual energy and transfer that into a momentum which they've almost pushed out onto the world. And uh, yeah, so that's sort of like a, a little recurring theme that I've, I've noticed and linked in a couple of different places there. In chapter seven of part two, um, in page 190, sort of the middle of that, he has a good section where he's talking about nihilism. And I guess what it is to 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 not feel anything. So, uh, the terrible thing the party that the party had done was to was to persuade you that um, mere impulses, mere feelings were of no account, while at the same time robbing you of all power over the material world. When you were once in the grip of the party, what you felt or did not feel, what you did or refrained from doing made literally no difference. Whatever happened, you vanished, and neither you nor your actions were ever heard of again. You were lifted clean out of the stream of history. So he's talking there where that is nihilism. That is not being able to really make a difference at all. And I think it's like humans need that feeling to be able to to do that. And so I guess, you know, what is the opposite of nihilism? It's, it's almost having at least something. It doesn't particularly matter what it is, but being able to have that, that, um, that something that drives you forward. And so just to, to go on with that, I would say terrible government or systems rob people of meaning. So they take away what it is that you, you get out of life and just n- none of that anymore. That's all for us. You have nothing. You just continue on, but you have no meaning. And so I think that that's, um, that's a pretty huge concept from the book as well. In part three, uh, in page 274, here's a, a, a quote, which I just love uh, which is in the face of pain there are no heroes so <laughs> just before this he was sort of moralizing about okay you know he he was trapped in a cell julia was in this other one and he was saying you know if i could take on double the amount of pain would i do it to 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 save her from having any and the correct answer is yes but he acknowledges that's very easy to make that's that's the correct answer to make but actually wishing more pain upon yourself is that possible and he comes up you know he immediately gets hurt by one of the the guards with a truncheon and realizes immediately no no that's not possible there is no way that you could actually want more pain in your life seriously it's it's just a non-concept uh, and that yeah i think that quote there just really summed it up um, nicely in uh, chapter two of, of part three as well, he during the torture, he couldn't force himself into unconsciousness. And I wonder why we can't do that. That seems like an intriguing aspect of, of consciousness, which is almost a, uh, a, a severe negative. For example, you can't sleep on demand. You can sit down, put your head on the pillow, and then it's almost like you're sort of just hoping it happens. Like there's no, there's no thing that you can just go, yep, all right, now I'm going to sleep. And why, why can't we do that? Well, surely that would be beneficial evolutionarily somehow to be able to just switch off consciousness, but also potentially not, which makes me think, okay, maybe that is, and I've been you know, exposing these ideas and 
in other areas, which is that consciousness is almost like the most valuable thing. And there is a reason why you can't switch it off because it is the most valuable thing. And doing so just carries super, super, you know, so many risks, you know, being able to just turn off sleep, turn on sleep, whatever. Okay, you can do that. But what happens when a bear walks in? Well, you probably want your body to somehow to be able to come out of that without being conscious of that. So, uh, yeah, I, I I would say this this is just one of those times where it, it made me realize, okay, you're right. We can't, if, some, if I'm getting tortured, I can't just turn off consciousness, which is what I want, which is what people say. I want to die. No, they don't want to die. They just don't want to feel the bad things. They don't want to feel that consciousness, have that consciousness anymore. So why why is it? Well, there's probably a really good reason why. Um, and I don't particularly know that reason, but it just makes me think, okay, that must be very, really valuable then. In page 290 as well, um, the party is not interested in the overt act. The thought is all that they care about. And... I found this really uh, a deep point as well where O'Brien was talking about how the Nazis, the Soviets, all these other people, and this book was almost written in the future of these. And he was saying, you know, they, they, they didn't succeed for a couple of reasons. One was they, they were pretending with their power. They were almost saying, you know, we're just holding on to this power temporarily, whereas he was saying, no, power is for power's sake. Uh, but the other was the, the thought was is what matters. And so they don't really care about what's actually happening in the person because when you control the thought, you control the person as well. And yeah, that, that was uh, interesting to me because I personally have a sort of philosophy of I don't really care what you think. It's your actions that matter in the world. But this is sort of saying the, different, uh, the opposite, which is no, the actions don't really matter in this case what we're most interested in is the thought. And if we can control that, then we can control the person. So I, I need to do a little bit more musing on that and try and figure out, okay, what what's the connect between those two and maybe why this applies in this situation and this other, the, the paradox, the opposite of that applies in another situation. So onto some of the, the cultural mainstays or the big, the biggest things that came from the book. Uh, double think, double think for me, I think is one of the most important concepts that we can apply to our own lives as well. So we also use double think. I think, I think we use double think to, to understand, or I guess live with paradox, which is just inherent in hand as a human, but the result should be towards a good. So, um, two plus two equals five is of course the, the main how this concept is presented, which is where he was, um, Winston in the book was getting tortured by O'Brien and he was saying, you know, um, how many fingers am I holding up? And he was holding up four fingers and he could only see four, but he needed to see five because that's what the party said, two plus two equals five. He needed to be able to do that or it could equal three or I could whatever. And there was many other cases of this where O'Brien was saying, I could literally levitate off the ground right now. I could do all these things, but the party doesn't want to, me to, so I'm not going to. But I could because what is most powerful is the thought. It's not the actual action. It's not the rules of, of gravity of the sun or the stars or whatnot. We understand those, but no, what's most important is what I think 
about the world is what actually makes the world. Uh, and the party wants me to think in this way. So if I think in this way, that is what actually becomes reality. Uh, you can see this in many cases with um, cogn cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, or people who join cults or have very extreme ideas, which is, is, is what they live in, not reality. I'm, I'm starting to incline towards more saying, no, it is a, a certain type of reality. It's not the physical reality that we all live in. And, you know, this is real useful having the, to be able to touch stuff and manipulate things and understand light and gravity and all, all, all that good stuff. But there is a, a different sort of reality that goes on in the own brain as well. And that, you know, I guess is linking towards consciousness and bam, we're right into a, another Maya. So, <laughs> Uh, another thing which I, I thought um, was uh, what's, what's the ultimate subtlety is to consciously induce unconsciousness. So I talked about this with Ron recently and uh, the latest meanderings, if you listen to that and com that comes out in two or three days, which is about flow states and being able to get into yeah, to, to be able to induce unconsciousness, which is like I was just saying, it was, it was sort of the, I, I sort of had come to the conclusion that consciousness is the most valuable thing. But then a lot of people talk about the, the real benefits of being able to in, become into flow, to be able to get into this certain sort of state. So um, maybe that's the ultimate subtlety. Maybe that is the ultimate trick to be able to um, you know, if consciousness is so valuable, maybe turning it off and on at will is maybe the ultimate sort of superpower, the uh, the the thing that rules the world in essence. I don't know. Control. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. I thought that was a, a pretty pithy point where he was just noting, <laughs> I guess, the, the eternal link of how all these things are connected. But... Uh, he controls the past, controls the future. So he was saying starting off with the past is is the way to control the future. And when you control um, uh, when you control the present, you control the past as well. So uh, yeah, it was it was almost like okay, you do the in their sort of schema schema. It was okay, we control the present, so we we'll control the past. And when we control the past, we can control the future. So the most important thing is to control the present right now. Um, which is, you know, you do that with clubs and, you know, forcing people to do things. But the the point of that is to control the past, which controls the future. So it's almost like uh, the future is the most valuable thing. So the past is is something that we can control in our own heads because it just exists out there. It's It's already done. There's no shaping of it that can be done by external forces only what's in our own heads really so just got me thinking about uh, my own thoughts and my own memories and, and whatnot and how i could potentially use them alter them to make my future better uh, yeah that could be cool <laughs> so uh the last one i want to touch on was sanity so does thinking you are the last sane man on the face of the earth make you crazy well in page uh, 301 Winston has this, this epiphany of what happens when 
what what can you do thought wisdom when the lunatic is more intelligent than you and so can explain things better what how does that make you feel uh that that's really interesting because there are certainly people out there who are smarter than you but believe i would say objectively or very close to objectively wrong things and what happens when you can't explain why you are right and they can destroy every argument you have but you know that you're right um but what what differentiates you then from you being the lunatic and someone you being trapped in this world of of um the earth is flat for example and then someone explaining to you and you know you're right but you can't explain it how do you differentiate between those two scenarios where you're wrong but you're right i'm not sure something else i need to ponder upon so to finish all of this off there's been a bit of a long one uh why is this book so good uh, well the br- brilliance of the small details um a minor event capturing winston's mind so strongly so like the newspaper clipping for example i found that just that just bangs right on home your memories are very selective and you'll remember something which seems maybe insignificant to others but for you holds just so much meaning and power to it uh you know a casually spoken word by a parent or a friend or an instance which nobody else in their right might right mind cares about but that has so impactful for you that that just you know that seems like reality to me so i think the book was really good at capturing human psychology on a, a very small scale but also in a large portion of of what happens the i guess no so i would say the human psychology of an individual he nailed in all of his characters but then he also managed to capture what is the essence of a system of humans in in the larger sense i think and melding those two together in a book i thought he just absolutely nailed that so uh you know it sort of predicted real events in the ussr um and some of the things that were happening with the gulags there and and whatnot and the propaganda for example um absolutely nailed that hang on uh the cultural mainstays that that are now part of our everyday language big brother uh, newspeak thought crime all those all those things um the story within a story of uh of goldstein's book that was probably my favorite part of the book reading goldstein's book just within the book uh, i don't know i just loved it. it it was one of those things that just captured my attention so deeply and yeah capturing snapshots of deep human psychology i th- i just thought i just think i thought and still think that this book is is right up there with some of the best stuff that i've uh, that i've ever read so um <laughs> i know there's been a long one if you've made it through all of this have uh, any of of these things um i don't know instigated new thoughts for yourself or or made you question um maybe something that you didn't uh, see from the book and now you could have another reread of it that would be cool and um yeah we'll just leave it there for today if you can like subscribe all that good stuff that'd be awesome other than that current out